the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour, high candidate. You do it live inside the Beltway, where Kevin McCarthy, a very good speaker, is no longer the Speaker of the House because the knucklehead caucus led by Matt Gates deposed him yesterday. Eight Republicans plus their two conspirators. Let's not forget Ralph Norman and Dan Bishop belong in the knucklehead caucus because they started the uh, boulder down the hill last week. Ken Buck, Dan Bishop, Matt Rosendale, Ralph Norman, and Andy Biggs two weeks ago, began what became the deposition, the the coup against Kevin McCarthy, which succeeded last night when eight of them joined, or yesterday afternoon, when eight of them joined 206 Democrats to toss out Kevin McCarthy. That is Eli Crane, Ken Buck, Andy Biggs, Marilyn Matt Rosendale, Matt Gates, Bob Good, Nancy Mace, Tim Burchett. Now, the two who are truly, truly knuckleheads, are Ralph Norman and Dan Bishop, who realized suddenly that their statewide hopes are doomed when they threw the Republican caucus into chaos. So they tried to hide last night. But then Bishop and Ralph Norman are in the knucklehead caucus. So it's Crane, Buck, Biggs, Rosendale, Gates, Good, Mace, Burchette, Norman, and Dan Bishop. I'll play some Kevin McCarthy as we go on. By the way, there was a mass shooting last night at 925 at Morgan State University, an HBCU in, in Baltimore, and five people were wounded, and the shooter is still at large. So I'll bring you updates on that as that occurs. That happened last night at 9.30. But they I don't have anything else to tell you other than five people were wounded, and they haven't got the killer, or the, the would-be killer, who was in a dorm room and opened fire. It had, it had mem- bad memories of Texas in there. But let's get to the story at hand. I want to play for you Newt Gingrich, who said it as well as anyone could because he's a former speaker. Right. The Republicans have a lot of former speakers. The Democrats only have one, which goes to tell you why the country is in such terrible shape, is that we got a bunch of morons in the caucus who act like morons all the time and take no counsel with anybody. I mean, Nancy Mace, honestly, I have no idea 
Kevin McCarthy got her elected, raised her $2 million, got it directed by the NRCC into her 2020 race for Congress. She got reelected. She voted against Kevin McCarthy, and she got some incoherent babbling. Now, you've never heard any of these people. I, I, Dwayne, double check with me here. Have we have, we might have had Eli Crane on when he tricked me um, back when he was running, but he hasn't been on. I'm not convinced we had Crane on. He canceled I, like 25 times. I th- right? I think we had Mace on once as part of a couple of weeks after the midterms. We had like all the women winning candidates. Okay, she might have been on once. Ken once. Buck has been on a lot because yeah, I thought Ken Buck was a good guy. Turns out he's a turncoat. Can't be trusted. Andy Biggs we've never had on. Marilyn Matt Rosendale will never be on here. Matt Gates, of course not. Bob Good wouldn't recognize him on the train. Tim Burchett is the guy who's sitting in Morgan Ortega's seat because the good old boys in Tennessee threw Morgan Ortega's off so they could elect one of their own, only one of their own didn't win. And this guy who's Mr. UFO is in there, and he prayed about it, and he thinks that Kevin McCarthy was somehow condescending towards him. So a great example of Christianity at work in Tim Burchett. Ralph Norman, who wanted to be a senator, and that's over. Dan Bishop, who wanted to be the attorney general, and that's over. But here is Mr. Newt talking to Sean Andy last night, cut number six. Well, first, I think it's a very sad day because I think Kevin McCarthy is one of the most talented leaders I've ever worked with. I think that he accomplished an amazing amount for having a small majority and being having to take on both the Senate and the White House. And I think this is really a tragic outcome. Uh, this was a leader who both gained seats in 2020, gained seats in 2022, increased the number of women members, increased the number of veterans, increased the number of minority members, uh, and he had a vision for a better future. And let, let's be clear here, Sean. Uh, you know, if, if the University of Georgia Bulldogs were the number one team in the country right now, if you started a game and four of the members of the offensive squad decided they were actually on the Alabama side and began tackling your own people, you probably get them off the field. Well, think about what we saw today. Four percent, four percent decided they were so morally superior, so intellectually pure, so patriotically better that they would side with the Democrats. And that's what they did in order to defeat the entire Republican House caucus, 96% of the Republicans voted for McCarthy, 4% voted against him. From my position as a longtime Republican activist, they're traitors. All eight of them should, in fact, be primaried. They should all be driven out of public life. What they did was to go to the other team to cause total chaos. We ought to be focusing on Biden. We ought to be focusing on the economy. We ought to be focusing on the border. Instead, you're going to get a week or 10 days of the media focusing on Republican disarray. It's an astonishingly destructive behavior by a handful of egocentric people who think they're superior to 96 percent of the conference. I I couldn't say it better. You can't say it better. Mr. Newt said it best. Dan Crenshaw explained what's going on here on Newsmax yesterday. Congressman Crenshaw, cut number three. They list out their specific complaints about McCarthy. I'll be honest, it's, it's personal. In the end, it's personal. Um, I'll give you, you know, for example, this past week, they, they forced, they forced him into a position that they, that could then pu- punish him for, right? They voted against the hyper conservative stopgap bill that had our border security bill that had 30% 
cuts to non-defense discretionary spending. It was like a conservative wish list. They made sure that tanked just so you'd have to pass a clean CR in order to keep the government open, and then they could punish them for it. So there's a game being played here that I, I think people need to be aware of, mm-hmm. right? It's not it's, it's it's not just based on these high-minded principles and nobility. It's it's just not, you know, it's personal. Okay, so and I, and, I, and I think they should be honest about that. Um, but it puts us in uncharted territory, and it makes us weaker with respect to Democrats. Yeah, well, actually, so there's, there's no winning strategy here. There is no winning. There is no strategy that would require a brain. If I only had a brain, let's do one more. Chip Roy on Steve Deese's show yesterday, cut number seven. No, I mean, you talked about a circle of uh, your description of pleasure. Um, I I know what you're doing there. Uh, I would also argue that, uh, you know, some of our brothers and sisters, particularly in the, um, you know, uh, MAGA camp, I think, uh, particularly enjoy the circular firing squad. You want to come at me and call me a rhino? You can kiss my ass. Look, I've spent a lifetime fighting for limited government conservatism. I have laid it all on the line. I've not seen my family for two days in the last 30 days. You go around talking your big game and you thumping your chest on Twitter. Yeah, come to my office and come out of a debate, mother. You know why? Because I'm standing up for this country every single day. And Steve, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to go to a nunnery. Because, God damn it, there were people who were buried over in Normandy who deserve us to stand up for what they fought for. So that's what I'm going to do. And all of you out there. My gosh, Chip, I'm angry, too, with the 10 morons. But Chip Roy is a conservative who actually tried to advance. He used the leverage vote. And the five of the 15 who held Kevin McCarthy hostage, you didn't know it at the time. You were empowering the knuckleheads. And you thought that they would be that you thought that they were actual conservatives. They're not. They're not conservative. They're wreckers. And they got it wrecked. And I don't know how they rebuild it. I don't know what to do next. I don't know if it'll be Scalise. It's not going to be Jim Jordan. Uh, I like Jim Jordan. He's a good friend of mine, but he's from the Freedom Caucus and the Freedom Caucus can't be the speaker. Maybe Patrick McHenry. State. I don't know. I want the person who can best hold together the McCarthy machine but that guy's name, McCarthy, McCarthy machine got the Republican majority. Stop Joe Biden dead in the tracks. Stop the inflationary death cycle of spending more money and printing more money. And made, got the select committee on the Chinese Communist Party going, got the weaponization committee going, got the gavel in the Republican hands. That's all Kevin McCarthy. That's all crashed and burned because of Matt Gates and the knuckleheads. So once again, let me just remind you, their names are, um, because I, I, I got to, I already put it away. I want to forget who they are, but I I can't forget who they are. Eli Crane, Ken Buck, Andy Biggs, Matt Rosendale, Matt Gates, Bob Good, Nancy Mace, Tim Burchett, Ralph Norman, Dan Bishop. That's the knucklehead caucus. That's the official ruiner. The people without any idea what they're doing. They're incompetent. They are the, uh, the, the caucus of knuckleheads. And they're all giving each other high fives and They should go on a cruise together. They should run the knucklehead cruise and see who signs up for that. Raise some money like they're always doing. They were doing last night. I got a text message, an email message from Matt Gates last night, because obviously they don't know who they're sending it to. Raising money because he's under attack. Seriously, do a cruise. Get going. I'll be right back, America. Stay tuned. Uh, I am Hugo at 1-800-520-1234 if you want to join in. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Mary Catherine Ham is co-host of the Getting Hammered podcast with Vic Mattis. Good morning, Mary Catherine. How are you? 
Good morning. I'm all right. Well, we have 10 members of the Knucklehead Caucus, and I'm including Ralph Norman and Dan Bishop because they got the ball rolling and then they ran for cover when they realized they were sinking the ship. Do you know Eli Crane, Ken Buck, Andy Biggs, Matt Rosendale, Matt Gates, Bob Good, Nancy Mays, Tim Burchett, Norman or Bishop? Do you know any of them? Uh, not personally, no. I, I think I've run into Biggs before, but other than that, uh, and Gates as well in green rooms, but um, not a lot of personal experience with them. All right. Uh, do you know what's going on with Nancy Mace? Because Kevin raised and spent $2 million for her, and she turned around and knifed him. I don't get that at all. But the other ones, I don't get either. But she just stands out. No no idea? Yeah, I mean, no one can figure out Nancy Mace in general. I feel like everyone's been trying to put their finger on exactly what her driving forces. And I, I saw somebody had a theory yesterday that I thought was kind of interesting, which is that the uh, – the gumption required to be the first woman that gets through the Citadel means that uh, you just don't have to listen to anyone tell you what to do. And she, she chooses whatever path she chooses on whatever day. And I think there might be something to that. Well, I, I hope she gets primary. We can't. I, I mean, what do you think happens now? This this Congress yeah. is blown. It's done. They might as well pass the CR and just get to 2025 because this is a mess. That's what's depressing about it, right? Because look, there were moves toward regular order, which is something that I am in favor of. I was like, oh, look, we have we have appropriations bills making it through committee. They, they're being marked up. They're moving. This is good news. Um, and here we've just shot ourselves in the foot entirely. The thing about me is that I am I probably agree with people who want to like watch it burn in some respects because. There's many things I don't want the federal government doing. There's many ways I think we could stop them from doing some of those things. However, if you want to work outside of the current structure, if you want to do something radical, you got to have a plan. Like you don't just blow it up and then tell me that that is serving some purpose because I see no purpose and I don't see how you like Biggs was talking about how we're going to get to regular order somehow after we do this. How's that going to happen? That that there was no plan. I think we can all agree they are the Wiley E. Coyote members of the uh, the Knucklehead Caucus. Who wants this job, Mary Catherine? I mean, would you want this job at this point? We've gone through McCarthy and 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 uh, uh, Paul Ryan and John Boehner, and they all get blown up. Who wants this job? First of all, don't curse me by putting me in the running, Hugh. You know they can put anyone in that spot. Uh, but second of all, that, this, this is the problem with this sort of death spiral, right, is that when you blow everyone up, you lessen, uh, you, you narrow the number of people who might want to do this job to more and more, I think, un, like unqualified people or less and less qualified people and you have to hope for somebody who is a decent person who's crazy enough to put themselves in this position. Like when Paul Ryan took it, I, I always joke that he was like the guy in Clerks where he's like, I'm, I'm not even supposed to be here today, right? <laughs> <laughs> but he ended up there. So you have to hope for that. But I think your choices become more and more limited. Well, we tried the Dean Martin caucus with John Boehner and that didn't work. Then we tried the wonky Congress with Paul Ryan and that didn't work. Then we tried the genuine political architect and that didn't work. So I don't, does Steve Scalise dare put up his hand? He's the natural successor, but I mean, does he dare do that? I mean, I've heard 
no mutterings about that uh, yet, which you would think you would hear already if he were going to. And then my question is, uh, now that the knucklehead caucus, as I think you've appropriately named them, have the power of social media and can command this amount of attention, uh, thereby sort of negating any punishment they get from leadership if they step out of line in these ways, how do you form a caucus that can keep itself together. That's, that is, now obviously Nancy Pelosi's capable of it, but our tools seem to not be working. So we need to figure out what the tools are and who the person is who can use them. And again, a much narrower field of candidates than we had before. Now they blew up the uh, workroom. The, the, the crap shop is in shattered. I, I'm kind of hoping that, that Patrick McHenry stays as Speaker Pro Tem. Kevin hangs around, keeps the organization together, and they expand the majority, and he comes back. But do you think that's possible? Uh, Look, I think it's become much less possible to expand a majority when you do this, because people, first of all, I'm closely following this, and I can't put any reason on this decision, right? There are people who are not closely following this, and all they see is, oh, they just decided to not do their work. Now they're, yeah. they're gone for a full week till they, till they even decide to vote again, right? Because this is what ha- this has caused. They won't be doing any work. And now come right, come say. right in our car. Luca Brazzi's in the back seat. Don't worry about that. Matt Gates and Luca Brazzi are back there. Do not worry about those guys in the back seat. Come be our speaker. I mean, I, I, yeah. it's the dumbest moment. I've been doing this for thirty three years on the air. It's the dumbest moment of the Republican Party. It's really, it's really quite remarkable. Don't go anywhere, America. I'm coming right back. Next hour, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida joins me. Stay tuned, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour, high Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt on the day after the dumbest day in Republican Party history. Congressman Mike Gallagher, chairman of the House Select Committee on the Engagement with the Chinese Communist Party, joins me. One of the great things Kevin McCarthy got going was your committee, Chairman Gallagher. Does it continue its important work uninterrupted? It does continue. As I read the rules and understand in consultations with the parliamentarian, committee work can continue. So we could continue to have briefings, hold hearings. We will continue our investigations, uh, all of our public communication, our internal work. We just can't bring legislation through committees, which doesn't affect us because we don't have legislative jurisdiction. But we can't bring legislation to the floor, which does affect us, because, as you know, there's a host of China related legislation that's backlogged in the Congress. Uh, Things like banning or forcing a sale of TikTok, uh, a coherent outbound investment uh, regime, amending CFIUS so that the Chinese can't buy land near sensitive military bases. These are all things that need to be legislated by Congress, not subject to the whim of the executive branch. And until we have a speaker, it's simply not possible. On the point about the executive branch, if you'll permit me, Hugh, all this chaos does, our inability to be disciplined with our narrow majority, and it is very narrow, it empowers the executive branch. which is the last thing that conservatives want. It makes the federal government less accountable. At least under Speaker McCarthy, we were doing aggressive oversight of the executive branch for the first time in years. I get that passing conservative legislation was hard, but the people that deposed the speaker opposed his conservative continuing resolution, which had border security, 
and a commission to fix our long-term debt issue. I, and, and then they cited our inability to pass conservative spending legislation as a reason for his proposal. It makes no sense. It's, it's recursive logic. Well, they, yeah, the attempt to impose any kind of coherence on this is impossible. Newt Gingrich said it last night. Derek Van Orden, one of your new colleagues, said it. Very uh, People from as old as Newt Gingrich and as young uh, in the Congress as Derek Van Orden uh, all know the same thing. But what happens next? I mean, you had, a, you, had a, you had a conference meeting last night, right, a caucus meeting. What happens next? Well, it was very short. And Patrick McHenry, who's acting speaker pro tem, everything is basically subject to his decision right now. He said it made sense for us to go home, come back on Tuesday. The candidates who want to run for speaker in the interim can prepare their agenda, their pitch. We will have a meeting on Tuesday night wherein the various candidates will make their case. And then depending on how that goes, I will have an internal vote in the caucus and then hopefully go to the floor Wednesday or Thursday for a speaker vote that hopefully avoids what happened in January, which is a prolonged and protracted speaker fight. Uh, that's the plan right now. But as you know, Hugh, the deadline for another another government shutdown is bearing down upon us. So an obvious question to ask the candidates, in addition to what they intend to do about China, which admittedly I'm biased, but that is the most important question. What are we going to do about our Defense Department and our ability to beat communist China? Uh, and what legislation do you plan to bring to the floor on that? In addition to that, what's your short-term plan for avoiding another you know, fiasco with the government shutdown leading to you know, an internal speaker fight. Otherwise, we're just going to be doing the circular firing squad. Now, I will admit I have sort of a radical view that now is the time to do, once you get past the short-term spending fight, now is the time to do a complete reorganization uh, and reform of the budget and appropriations process. It makes absolutely no sense. The fundamental divide between authorizing and appropriations committees makes absolutely no sense. If you go back to the Dreyer Commission in the mid-90s, one of the things they recommended was collapsing the appropriations committees into the authorizing committees. Simple things like aligning the fiscal year with the regular year, which is the lowest of low-hanging fruit, would go a long way towards avoiding this complete chaos. I actually think there's a lot you can do in bipartisan fashion to clean up the nuts and bolts of how we budget, or don't budget, as the case may be. Could the um, uh, Speaker Pro Tem of the House, Patrick McHenry, bring up uh, a spending bill, an omnibus, or a uh, a collection of our appropriations bills and send them over to the House. I mean, can he do that so that we do not cripple the new speaker with day one with the same knuckleheads? That I do not know, Hugh. As I read the rules, uh, I think he could. I think he decides what comes to the floor. Uh, and now put aside the question of whether he would want to do that, whether that would be wise for him or the caucus. Um, I guess, and the caveat that I actually don't know the definitive answer to that question, but as I read it, I think he could bring something to the floor and elide the committees in the process um, and maybe falls on that grenade so that, yeah, the new speaker has a blank slate. Um, yeah, that, think about know, what right, the next speaker that, That's what I'm worried about. I'm, I am worried about the next. The same 10 knuckleheads will do it again because, you know, that which gets rewarded gets repeated. They're getting clicks. I don't know what Nancy Mace was thinking about. I have no idea what Eli Crane was thinking about. I know what Dan Bishop thought, and and Ralph Norman took the temperature, and they just said, oh, we're going to screw ourselves in our states, and it's too late for them to... So they didn't vote with the eight, but I have just... There's no clue there. So maybe we use Patrick McHenry, who's a very smart guy, 
to get a 15-month budget done that does what we need to get done and then wait for the election to tell us if we have a president or not? Yeah, there, there, are, there are worse things than a, than a suboptimal budget negotiation outcome. One of them would be losing the 2024 election to the Democrats. I mean, look at the cost of losing the Senate on January 5th, 2021, if my dates are correct. I mean, you, the cost is trillions of dollars and counting. Again, for like a lack of internal discipline and teamwork in the Republican Party and self-sabotage in the Republican Party. Now we risk doing the same thing in the House, which is the one chamber that we have control of. And the only thing standing in the way of uh, Biden and a complete sort of Green New Deal uh, fantasy turning America into to, you know, Europe light at this point. So I get a, a narrow majority is hard. Nobody gets 100 percent of what they want. I've been forced to accept lower defense top lines than I would like. But the only way to be successful in a narrow majority is aggressive oversight, teamwork, return to regular order and a willingness to make principle compromise without compromising your principles. No, we can't do that, though. I mean, that's not possible. So I'm thinking McHenry goes and gets the DOD appropriation. That is the most important thing. The DOD appropriation, the Homeland Security appropriation. And then he says to the to the most reasonable Democrats, let's pass this and send it over to the Senate and see what comes back and challenge the Senate to get it back in a hurry. And then he stays as the interim speaker because we nobody wants this job. Chairman Gallagher. Nobody wants to get knifed in the back. Yeah, you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. There's something I, I wonder, Hugh, if, if I can express this in a way that makes sense. I think there's something bigger understand, going on here, which is all these precedents. We're breaking all these precedents, right, from pulling fire alarms to threatening executions to to deposing speakers like there, there are no norms anymore that are that are not. Uh, you know, capable of being shattered. And some of the most important rules in our system of government are not written down. They just come back to basic decency and, 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 and you know, restraints on human behavior. Um, and I, I worry about the escalating spiral that creates, because usually when one party does it, the other party does it, which is why I think a lot of Democrats yesterday are going to regret uh, voting to depose Speaker McCarthy and then celebrating that fact, because what goes around comes around. Yeah, late Roman Republic stuff. I mean, it just continue. And I, I, by the way, I applaud uh, Speaker Pro Tem McHenry throwing out Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer from their cubbies because that was part of the deal, right? They, they were supposed. Oh, we'll treat you like generous, gentlemanly people uh, in a gracious fashion, and then they pulled the cork on Kevin yesterday. So out they go. And I, I'm all for that, but it is late Roman Republic stuff. Yeah, it's, it's very concerning. And again, the, the issue that you and I talk most about, uh, our ability to deter war with China and then win the new Cold War over the long term, uh, I fear is suffering. We don't have 18 months to waste. We simply cannot waste 18 months awaiting the coming of some messianic presidential figure to solve all our problems. Congress needs to step up and lay the foundation for a successful foreign policy in the short term, in the midterm and in the long term. Yeah, if you have a chance to encourage McHenry today to go over and sit down with the Senate leadership on the Republican side and do a package, take the heat and then go back to financial services, what he's really good at, and let someone have 15 months of just uh, uh, clear sailing. Because we can't do this three or four more. Well, we can. We probably will, actually. I've been around longer. There's actually probably no way out of this, but I'm glad you're at work with a time. Did you stay there all night or did you just come in this morning? I have to do a few meetings this morning, Hugh. But, hey, I want to reassure you, Hugh, I want to end on a note of optimism and just say 
it's always darkest before it gets pitch black. Okay. <laughs> That's so exactly. We could do this all again next week. I mean, really, but these, these 10 knuckleheads are not going to Wiley E. Coyote congressmen are not going anywhere. Chairman Gallagher, thank you for joining us. Keep doing the work of this special select committee, please. I'll be right back. America, stay tuned. When the government used emergency edicts during COVID to restrict the gathering and worship of churches, three pastors facing the risk of imprisonment, unlimited fines, and their own churches being ripped apart, took a courageous stand and reopened their doors in the face of a world that chose to comply. The Essential Church is a feature-length documentary that explores the struggle between the church and government throughout history. This fascinating story uncovers those who've sacrificed their lives throughout history for what they truly believe in. We discover why the church is essential and how we prove that this stand remains true from a scientific, legal, and most importantly, biblical perspective. This is not your typical movie. It'll change your life. You need to see this movie with your friends and family. The Essential Church is streaming today exclusively at SalemNow.com. That's Essential Church, streaming at SalemNow.com. Hey, good morning, Governor. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm great. Uh, I I would be uh, committing malpractice if I didn't ask for your reaction to what happened yesterday in the House of Representatives. You are an alumni of the House. What do you think? Well, it's a strong contrast to how we do business in Florida. I think you see a lot of theater, a lot of chaos. I'm not sure it ever leads to any results, whereas in Florida, everything we do is is calculated uh, to deliver outcomes and to, to create a better life for the people down here. I also think just reflecting on you had like, what, five or six members, Republicans joined with all these Democrats. You know, we were supposed to have a red wave in 2022, and that didn't happen. It happened in Florida, and we delivered four additional Republicans. Uh, but that was uh, one of the best uh, environments to run in for Republicans probably since like the 1940s, and we totally muffed it. Uh, and I think that, that this is uh, part of the uh, follow-on from that. But we just need leadership. I mean, we need to uh, put leaders out there deliver for the folks that, that we represent. So uh, I think that um, we need we need order, we need uh, smooth government operations, and we need to deliver results. That's what we've done in Florida for the last five years, and you see the contrast. Governor, now let me turn to uh, the big stuff. I had dinner last night with a Marine Corps general, not general officer, a field officer, and they asked me to ask you about grand strategy, and I read your your promises to fix the military and how you are going to do that. Quote, within six months, the performance of all personnel enforced in our command and staff billets will be reviewed. And it goes on. It's a very good plan. He asked, though, what is the grand strategy you will sit down by the, the Resolute Desk on day one with, specifically China, Russia, and Iran? They are working together. How do you break up that deal? Well, we need a whole-of-society approach to fending off the CCP. This is our top threat. This decade will be the decisive decade. This is a military uh, confrontation, perhaps, a technological, economic, cultural, all of those things. Uh, we need to be uh, have national policy geared towards fending off the CCP. And I think that Washington's policy, the, the D.C. kind of smart set, they, they've had all bark and very little bite with respect to China. 
I think on the current course, China will surpass us as we get into next decade. So some of the things we're going to do, you need more hard power in the Indo-Pacific. We are going to have a naval buildup. We'll we'll shoot for 355 ships after the first term, and we'll get to 385 ships after term two. But I think even more importantly than that, reinvigorating our defense industrial base and our shipbuilding capacity so that within 20 years, we could get close to 600 ships. Uh, I think that uh, we had an opportunity when COVID hit uh, to really mobilize the country uh, behind a common purpose of fending off the CCP, and we could have started uh, doing some of this naval buildup there, but that's really, really important, Um, and so we're going to do that, but I think everything we do is going to be viewed through the prism uh, of how do we counter uh, the China threat. Obviously, there's other threats in the world, and and we'll, we'll deal with those, but just like Reagan dealt with the Soviets above all else, we need our grand strategy to focus on China above all else. Now, Governor, how does Russia fit into that? Because what my officer friend said last night, what's the end state that he envisions in Russia vis-a-vis Ukraine? What do you consider stability for the world in a position from which we can turn to the main player in the threat, which is China in the new Cold War? Well, we can stop uh, empowering Russia through uh, dysfunctional energy policy. You can have the Green New Deal. I don't want that. I think it's bad. But just understand, when you go in Biden's direction, you are helping Russia. You're helping Iran. You're helping Venezuela. And you're also helping China. So we put out in Midland, Texas, a couple weeks ago, our plan for American energy dominance. We're going to choose Midland over Moscow. We're going to choose the Marcellus over the Mullahs. And we're going to choose Bakken over Beijing. Biden is effectively funding both sides of that conflict. His energy policy helps Moscow. He's also relieved sanctions on Iran and then, of course, did the $6 billion. They're very much invested in, in helping Russia uh, with all those things. But I think we have the economic levers uh, to be able to weaken Russia, and that's just beyond the, the, the current conflict. Uh, that is what they rely on, and Biden's energy policy will make Russia more powerful. My energy policy will wreak in Russia. Now, you are a veteran and, and a Navy man, but you realize, I, I think you realize, the budget just can't continue on as it has. We have to re, reallocate between the Navy, the Army, the Air Force, the Space Force, and the Coast Guard. Do you have a plan, and do you have someone in mind who would be the sec def that would come in and really do what Weinberger did for Reagan, which is reshuffle the DOD so that we get it back to war fighting? Yes. And so I, I would say rather than name and name, I'd say the, the, what I'm looking for in a sec def is somebody. One, I think it's been a mistake to have some of the retired generals go in. I supported the Mattis waiver. I think he's a, a great officer. And, and also, but I think you need somebody who's not part of kind of that club somebody that's got strong executive skills and that's really going to be able uh, to hold people accountable uh, is not going to be popular in Washington, but is going to be willing to make the tough decisions and show uh, that, that there's a new sheriff in town because the bureaucracy in the Pentagon is totally out of control. I do think that if you're, if you're pursuing a China strategy like, like I would, uh, you do need a stronger Navy and a Marine Corps. I mean, that's just the reality of, of the threat that we face. Uh, so we're going to do that, but we're going to have a culture of accountability. It's, it's to me, we, you look at the Afghanistan debacle, not one person has been held accountable for that entire Afghanistan debacle. And I kind of feel like 50 years ago, if that had happened, there would have been 
massive resignations, massive terminations, and yet you had none of that. So, so we do need to have a culture of accountability, and we will deliver that. When you get there, if you're the president, will you do an after-action report on everything from closing Bagram right down to Abbey Gate, and will you name names? Yes, absolutely. We need to. All right. I appreciate that. Uh, I want to talk about running mates for a second, Governor, because it's always been a tradition to wait to the last week. That's a stupid tradition. I want a fighter and I want generational change. And I say that as a 67 year old, we just cannot have an old running mate. We, you know, we don't need a Lloyd Benson. We don't. What is your idea for a running mate? Cause I don't believe in racial and gender balance on the ticket. I want someone who can fight and articulate. No, I think you're exactly right. I think doing Biden shows you doing those other considerations, what that got you. You know, he he did Kamala Harris. And the problem is the number one thing you have to do is somebody that can do the job. Uh, Number two is somebody that that shares your vision and shares your priorities. And yes, as you say, that can that can articulate that um, and be a good spokesman for it. And so so that's what I would look for. I wouldn't worry about the political considerations in terms of this or that. I don't think ultimately it really makes a difference. I think this is your first decision uh, as the president, effectively, uh, and, and it's gonna, you're going to be judged off the quality of that executive decision. When I ran for governor the first time in Florida, I made a great pick. We've got a great lieutenant governor, Jeanette Nunez. My opponent made a pick that wasn't as good. And then this reelection, my opponent picked the head of the Miami-Dade Teachers Unions. And so oh. it's, a window, it's a window into your executive uh, decision-making. And so you've got to get that right. But the most important thing is someone you're on that stage with someone you're waving. They say that person can be president. And that person is somebody that shares uh, the governor's agenda. And you need you need someone to take the message to the other side. I mean, you really need a fighter. Let me go back to Russia. Uh, George W. Bush thought he could deal with Putin. Uh, Barack Obama uh, sent the reset button. Hillary Clinton thought she could deal with Putin. Donald Trump thought he could deal with Putin. Joe Biden thinks he can deal with Putin. And his appeasement ended up with the second invasion of Ukraine. How do you approach Putin, who is a very evil man, Governor? So it's not through personality. It's not that I'm somehow going to charm him. It's using the leverage that we have at our disposal. I mentioned the energy, uh, doing that, uh, working with allies to be able to bring pressure to bear. These guys, they don't respond to uh, you know kind overtures. They don't respond to personality. They don't all just want to hold hands and, and have a better world. They respond to leverage and they respond to strength. And so we have to do that. I think that... Um, when presidents have been strong, uh, I think it's been a successful deterrent for bad actors. Biden was kind of uh, the worst of our worlds because, I mean, he comes in and it was just one thing after another. And that really green lit, I think, a lot of bad people to do a lot of bad things. Now I want to switch to domestic policy. One of your big wins that nobody knows much about is New College. I applied completely changing out the board. They named a new president yesterday, which was their acting president. That's great. They are considering doing away with tenure. I think tenure is a disease that is spread throughout the United States. As president, what can you do about tenure from K through 12 and in colleges that are state funded? Through the accreditation cartel. So we're going to totally blow up the accreditation cartel right now. Part of the reason universities operate, they are, is because they need to get accredited. And these accreditors are all trying to create the types of universities that we that we object to as conservatives. So we're going to have alternative accreditors. Uh, it's going to be 
instead of you have to have gender studies or you have to have DEI to get accredited, it'll be the opposite. We're not going to accredit you uh, if you have DEI and some of these other things. And so that is going to create, I think, an opportunity uh, for a lot of innovation in higher ed. And what we've seen in New College, just by saying, I mean, basically, we came in, new president, they got rid of things like CRT, they abolished the gender studies department, they rebranded the university as being the best classical publicly funded liberal arts college, and it's modeled after Hillsdale College. Hugh, the number of parents across this country who are interested in applying is unbelievable, and they were struggling to get applications, and we were lucky because our out-of-state tuition in Florida is about $16,000. Our in-state is about $6,400, so it's a bargain. It's a great, great place to go, but there's a huge, huge demand, so we're going to use the accreditation. I think that's going to be a good thing, uh, and I do think you're going to see a lot of changes in higher ed. Another thing we're going to do is uh, we're going to make the universities responsible for the, for the loans. Uh, that's going to cause them to change their behavior because they're not going to be able to go on ideological joyrides with their curriculum knowing that if somebody gets out of the university and they can't uh, afford to, to get by, that the university may end up being on the hook. So you're going to see much more focus in terms of the subjects that are going to be offered because of those incentives. Now, Governor, the first couple of debates have sort of wandered away from Bidenomics. Uh, they start on Bidenomics and then they wander away into into some pretty bizarre stuff. You won the last debate with a walk-off home run when you rejected the question by the moderators. What ought these debates to be discussing? I think they need to be discussing the economy, particularly why we're in this mess. I think it's important to point out it all started with COVID in March of 2020. Uh, There was massive borrowing, printing, and spending under both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, That's led to the interest rates being where they are, and it's put a lot of people in a world of hurt. Uh, We obviously need to reverse those policies. We need to discuss Biden's attempt to impose an ideological control over the economy, whether that's the Green New Deal, whether that's other things that they're doing in all aspects of the economy. It's bad for freedom, and it's all ultimately going to be very bad for a standard of living. We need to talk about having energy independence and energy dominance. We do need to talk about the border and our sovereignty and the fentanyl overdoses that that are happening as a result of that. That moderator in the other debate was trying to blame Americans for the fentanyl overdoses. I was shocked that, that she would even try to do something like that. We need to talk about the growth of the administrative state. How are we going to reconstitutionalize government and end weaponization of agencies like like the IRS and, and the FBI, um, you know, those are all really, really significant issues that, uh, you know, I run the table uh, nationally. We're going to have a House and Senate majority. We're going to have opportunities, uh, you know, to get a lot of this stuff done. So, so we're going to be ready to go on day one. A lot of people just want the government to run by executive order. That's not constitutional. You know that. Will you force the responsibility back down to the states because I'm tired of phones and executive orders. I'm tired of presidents trying to do everything. It's not supposed to work that way. It's a federalist system. Are you committed to that? So with immigration, one of the key portions of our border plan is to to deputize the states to enforce immigration law. I want them to do it. Texas wants to do it. Some of these want to do it. 
So we're going to be doing that. Uh, we will be devolving power back to the states. Look, there is a role for executive orders. I mean, if the, the, these agencies are doing things that are bad, you do an executive order to revoke the nonsense that Biden's doing. Uh, if we want to have the agencies behave in a better way, you can do an order. But the executive order is about how government operates. You can't do executive orders over society. You need legislation in Congress or you need the states to be able to do it. But one of the things we do everything that we're doing, we have a mind uh, we have a mind about, OK, we'll have 50 some senators. You need 50 in reconciliation. What can we put into that package? I think we can do stuff with school choice. I think we can do stuff with naval buildup. I think we can do, uh, obviously, we're going to repeal a lot of Biden stuff or as much as we can to get into there, uh, reduce the deficit, extend the tax rate. So all of that stuff are things that we're going to be ready to go with so that we know we can actually get this stuff to stick. Because if you look at what Biden did when he came in, you know, he reversed every single Trump policy basically on day one. And, and it's just been off to the races there. So you've got to be able to get this stuff to stick legislatively, and you've got to empower the states so that they're able to get stuff st- to stick. Well, that, last question, Governor. We need an attorney general who actually knows DOJ, who has the respect of, of judges around the country and can attract talent. Do you have anyone in mind? Because we cannot swing and miss on that, as we did with Jeff Sessions, who I like, but he was a terrible attorney general. I've got I've got some people in mind. I'd say here's the qualities I'm looking for. Yes, very smart, a constitutionalist, strong legal mind, but somebody that has backbone because that swamp does not want DOJ reformed. Uh, so when you go in there and you clean house, you are going to face a lot of blowback. And so you just have to be uh, okay with getting smeared in the New York Times and by CNN and all these, uh, and just know that you're representing American people outside of the D.C. who want to see this job justice system corralled, and you have a huge opportunity to make a great difference for the country, but it is going to come at a cost. So if you don't have that spine of steel, if you don't have that backbone, don't even bother applying. Governor Ron DeSantis, keep coming back. Good to talk to you. I look forward to the next debate in November in Miami on your home turf. Thank you, Governor. Thanks, you. Take care. Bye-bye. America, bonjour, high Canada. Jim Garrity is my colleague as a contributed editor of the Washington Post. He is contributing columnist at the Washington Post and at the National Review Online, where the morning jolt comes out. Jim, you've been doing this a long time. Not as long as me, but a long time. I think yesterday was the dumbest day to be a Republican ever. What do you think? The theme of today's morning jolt is what is the point of the Republican Party? What what is it supposed to do? What, What does it exist to do? Because I feel like it's really not clear anymore. I went back and I looked at the uh, the National Democracy Institute. That's a small D democracy. It's not capital D Democratic Party. It's a nonprofit. And they have this definition of what Democratic parties, of, of what a political party's role in democratic system is. And I don't think Republicans do that anymore. I, I think that, you know, the whole, like, it, it certainly doesn't have any clear ideology. It certainly doesn't have any clear sense of what its agenda is. It doesn't have everybody in the party pulling their like there's always been ideological diversity. There's always been this this different ways of thinking. But, you know, once your party has a slim majority, well, we all got to hang together. Otherwise, you know, we're not going to have a speaker. And I'll admit I was surprised. I my entire and I my entire attitude towards McCarthy was, well, you know, yeah, you got a bunch of people who are complaining about him, but you can't beat something with nothing. So who do you replace him with? And the attitude of these eight Republicans was, well, we'll we'll figure that out later. Uh, at, it's it's 10, Jim. With, uh, I, I insist on including Dan Bishop and Ralph Norman 
because while they did not vote to oust the, the speaker, they were part of the knucklehead five who started the ball down the hill two weeks ago on the defense appropriations rule. So Bishop and Norman are part of the 10 Wiley Coyote Republicans. And as you noted, uh, many of these guys are either definitely running for statewide office and other offices next cycle. Uh, A lot of them are thinking about it. Rosendale's thinking of running for Senate. Norman was apparently thinking about running against Lindsey Graham in the primary. Um, Gates says he's he says I'm not thinking about running for governor of Florida, but everybody in Florida tells me I should. Okay, yeah, sure. All right. You know, Um, and so like here's the thing, like it's tough to build consensus. But when some of these guys in your caucus don't plan on hanging around, this place is just a stepping stone. I'm not interested in actually, you know, it's much easier to burn your bridges. It's much easier to alienate your colleagues if you're going to if you you're, you got one foot out the door. So, so uh, you know, I, I, Jim, if you were Patrick McHenry and you are the speaker pro temp, you're running everything until you're replaced. Would you try and put into place a 15-month budget deal with the not-insane Democrats and the not-insane Republican wreckers and send it over to the Senate so that we can at least get back to focusing on Bidenomics and China? Because this is truly a destructive, self-destructive act by these 10. That's an intriguing thought. I had not really put much uh, thought into that scenario, uh, Hugh. But I will point out that, like, so you got two vacancies. You need 217 votes to have a speaker. There are 200 and was it 10, uh, 212 Democrats right now? Right, uh, 221 Republicans, 212 Democrats. That's right. So you need five. So conceivably, if there are five House Republicans who get fed up with this, who are worried about their own reelection in swing districts, suburbs, something like that, and they say, you know, I could live with a Henry Cuellar. I could live with a Jared Golden. I could li- I could live with one of the more conservative Democrats being speaker. Then conceivably, you could have a Democrat as speaker. They, they could get that 217 votes. I'm not saying it's definitely going to happen. I'm just going to say that it's now within the range of possibilities. Uh, and it's an interesting way to say to the, you know, the knucklehead caucus, oh, you guys think you're uninfluential now? Let's have a Democratic uh, Speaker of the House. Let's see how influential you feel then, right? Yeah, you know, the oh, trouble with that, though, is, so- is you yeah, lose the gavels on oversight. And we need oversight on justice. I mean, the place is a madhouse. The, the executive branch cannot be free of subpoenas for another 18 you months. love that Gates going out there and saying the entire impeachment effort is failure theater and it's not doing a, doing a darn bit of good? Yeah, I, well, I, I know, like my know, favorite Matt Gates quote yesterday. On everything how every other House Republican has been doing the entire year. Yeah, my, my favorite Gates quote yesterday is not that one. It's, I am not going to run for speaker. That's like he, he is also not going to compete in the giant slalom in the next Winter Olympics. That's like, I'm not going to run a 230 marathon. That was great. Matt Gates. I think he should. Someone should nominate him. You know, yeah. Yeah. It's a big concession for him to, you know. What what do you want McCarthy to do? Do you want him to stay? I do, because I've glimpsed the McCarthy machine. It is a giant machine, but it is usually put together by people who actually want to accomplish things. I don't know that we have a party apparatus anymore after this. And the, the damage is pretty deep. I agree. And the, the entire, like I said, because I was skeptical, and it wasn't skeptical that there wasn't criticisms of McCarthy. He's just, you know, he's a human being. He's he's going to make mistakes. He's gonna, you know, he, again, he's in a situation where he's got very little leverage, and I, I think he's getting, you know, like you could argue on the, on the margins, maybe he could, have, but like you know, 
he's got he's got a small house majority. He doesn't have the Senate. He doesn't have you know, he's got a Democrat in the White House. He's, he's you know, there's only so much he can do. Um, I, I thought that, you know, yeah, maybe you get rid of him, but you just realize you have no consensus on who the replacement is. So you end up going back to McCarthy. Now, McCarthy says he's not running for the position again. He says he's, you know, he's done his time. I, I wouldn't be shocked if there is no consensus candidate to replace him. Uh, like, I, I mean, you know, may, like, but if the, other, if the whole point of this is like, well, we're not we're going to get rid of McCarthy and we're going to finally fix this with Steve Scalise. By the way, Steve Scalise is fighting blood cancer. So look, he's looking OK, but he's going to be going through chemotherapy. God bless him. I think I, I'm so glad he's, you know, got through the shooting. OK, but like. Is this a guy who's going to be in a condition to be running the house for, for the next couple of months? Who wants you know, the anybody... job? Who in the world yeah. wants to deal with Matt Gates and Nancy Mace, the two ends of the knucklehead caucus on the right and the left, with whom you cannot reason? Because they're, they're like the weather vane, and, and if it blows, they blow. So I don't know who wants the job. I'm kind of in favor of McHenry remaining Speaker Pro Tem for the rest of the session, passing a budget with, with, uh, you know, 90% of the Republicans and 5% of the Democrats and going home and let the committees work because we're not going to get anything passed, right? Well, I was just about to say, you know, how how great will Gates's move be if he I got rid of McCarthy and put a McCarthy lieutenant in the job for the rest of the set? Like, what was the point of all this? What you know, oh, you you, you yeah, you oh. turned the place upside down. Um, well, let me show you I, the point of all this, Jim. I I thought I had hit rock bottom until I went to my email last night, and I got a Matt Gates email to me saying, um, uh, I'm under attack. Fellow conservative, I need your immediate attention. I was attacked in capitals and booed in capitals by rhinos in capitals for underlining, asking you to weigh in and contribute to this fight. So I've hit bottom. I'm getting Matt Gates email. I got on his list somehow. I've done everything I could to stay away from his list. First of all, can I point out, I, you know, everybody I know is on, gets on every political email list, even though they've never signed up for anything. So that's, that's problem number one. Problem number two is I get the texts and I get a lot of democratic fundraising texts. And the oh, so I respond, I. Yeah. I put this out to your, I put this out to your listeners and viewers. When you get a political text that really bugs you respond, you have angered me so much. I am donating the legal maximum to your opponent. And I want to see, I will do whatever it takes to see your guy go down in flames. Uh, and they stop. They stop texting. They, they oh, they respond. do. They, they, oh, that works. Yeah, that that, that gets their attention. Uh, you know that won't work with Matt Gates because that assumes that there's someone with a brain on the other end of the line. Uh, well, I want to conclude. Ninety-five percent of House Republicans voted to keep McCarthy in place, and his attitude is ninety-five percent of the House Republican Caucus is rhinos. They just the whole. Well, okay, all right. Guess what? That means you're on the extreme. That means you're 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 like. That you, what your definition of squish, your definition of rhino, now encompasses more than nine out of ten Republicans. That's the situation, now, Matt Gates. Now I just had on Governor DeSantis, and I'll play the rest of his interview that I played. Aired, I talked to him, and I'll air it in the next segment. He's very serious and on message, Jim. He's running the anti-happy campaign. He's running. This is hard. It's going to take two terms. We got to start at the top. We got to get rid of the people at justice. And then we got to push down things of the state. And I mean, he's running a hard edge campaign. Will it work? I think if it doesn't work, all everything we're lamenting about the lawmakers on Capitol Hill is actually a reflection of the problems within the Republican you know, primary voters in the electorate. In that we say, oh, these guys aren't, you know, these guys on Capitol Hill aren't serious. They're only interested in camera attention. They're only interested in fundraising and stuff like that. 
Well, if DeSantis goes out there and flops, and let's face it, he's not, you know, he's over 15% in a whole bunch of polls. It's not looking great for him. Uh, when he's saying all the right things, when he's got the most, you know, arguably the best record of any governor, Republican governor in the country, uh, serious, knows the policy, knows the details, is the guy who can get it done. If you ditch all that for a guy who's ranting on truth social all the time, then it says the Republican Party isn't a governing party and doesn't want to be a governing party and wants to be. Uh, Matt Gates is the congressman from Newsmax, and that's all the whole of the Republicans really want. You know, I'm not going to agree with that because I am Switzerland. But I will tell you that uh, the DeSantis-Trump debate is an important one, and we ought to be having it. But the Democrats have got the one in court and the other one blocked from serious media. It's truly a difficult situation. Uh, Jim Garrity over at National Review. I'll look for the morning jolt this morning. Thank you for joining me. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Chairman Mike Turner helms the Intelligence Committee in the House of Representatives. He hails from Dayton. He's a Buckeye. Congressman, good morning. Welcome back. Great to have you. Good morning, Hugh. Thanks for having me. Now, no one from Ohio joined the Knucklehead Caucus yesterday. Crane, Buck, Biggs, Rosendale, Gates, Good, Mace, Burchette. And then Norman and Bishop are honorary members because they got the ball rolling. What happens in the House Caucus? Now, I wanted to talk to you about intel, and we'll get to that. But what happens next? Sure. Well, there certainly is chaos on Capitol Hill, Hugh. And as you know, um, you know, Kevin McCarthy was basically removed because he refused to shut down the government. And those who wanted the government shut down, which would have accomplished nothing, have now instead shut down the House of Representatives. Uh, so we're, we're on pause now as the House looks to the successor for Kevin. Um, and you know, we certainly have some great talent. Uh, Steve Scalise, obviously, is number two, is a, the natural successor. Jim Jordan has shown tremendous amount of leadership. Uh, both of them would do a, a, an excellent job. But I, I, I tell you, if, um, if we're going to be able to move forward and get past uh, the, uh, this disruption, we're going to have to change the rules of the House so that no one can do this again. Uh, the rules you know, previously when Nancy Pelosi was speaker would not have permitted this. Um, we had started to change the rules to make certain that um, that we could function. If we're going to pick a, a leader for our team, we need to act like a team. And uh, one person should and a group of 10 uh, joining together should not be able to take them down. Now, uh, Mr. Chairman, I am curious if you think it is possible for Speaker Pro Tem McHenry to put together an 18 month spending plan bring it up with the 90% of the caucus that are normal conservative Republicans, get a few Democrats to sign on because they get a couple of things that they want and then send it over to the Senate because this is a dysfunctional house with these 10 people and it's not going to get better. Do you think that's possible to do it that way? Well, I, my understanding, and I certainly have talked to Patrick McHenry and he is certainly, uh, you know, it's great to have him in this position at this point because he'll, he'll be stable and, and uh, he's a, also a great leader highly substantive. Uh, but uh, according to the rules, he, he only has the authority to be able to convene the House for the purposes of electing uh, a speaker and, and a few other administrative items. Uh, so those types of, um, of, of big policy issues, I, I think, would evade him. Uh, but, you know, Hugh, you're, you're absolutely right. that the, we, We've got to govern. And uh, you know, people can't just sit on the sidelines and expect that we're going to be able to get anything done. Uh, will any of the 10 be in any way punished? Newt Gingrich watched them all exiled and primaried. I have no idea what the authority of the caucus is other than to change their office. I'd put Matt Gates in the basement if you have a basement. But wh- what is the what can the caucus do? 
Well, there's no question that, that the, these individuals have changed their relationship with the rest of the caucus. And, uh, you know, I think our first number one job is, is to get a speaker elected. And then, you know, after that, we need to have a, a discussion as to what our rules should be uh, so that this doesn't happen again. Um, and then a, a, I think, obviously, an analysis of, you know, how, how was it that this was allowed to happen and make certain that as a team we stay together and uh, corporately uh, this isn't allowed to happen again. All right. Well, let me go over to the. The, the writ that you have, which is House Intel, I just talked with Governor DeSantis about his campaign and I asked him the grand strategy if he's a president. And of course, it begins with China. Do you think that the Russia-China alliance is breakable easily in the way that some members of the of the Republican would be presidential campaigns are saying? Well, I don't know that it's that breakable even needs to be to be totally broken, but I, it certainly needs to be diminished. And, and, I, and then. The process for that starts with Ukraine uh, and making certain that Russia is not successful um, as as Russia undertakes its aggression and its ruthless murdering of U- Ukrainians. Uh, China needs to see Russia not be successful there. Uh, one, that uh, the, the world's democracies will stand against authoritarianism, uh, but also, two, uh, that, that Russia as a potential ally is, is weak and it doesn't have a, a, a great ability to execute um, as a partner to China. Now, now, Chairman, someone who's very wired told me yesterday that support for Ukraine is now a minority position in polling of Republicans. I'm kind of stunned by that because I've been around since a kid in the Reagan White House, and we always kind of supported anyone who was against Russia, even when it was the Soviet Union. Is that your sense that half the party is against funding Ukraine? No, what I think it is, and, and, and this, you know, we have to be cognizant of this, the the Ukraine defense has been funded through a Democrat administration and through um, you know, Nancy Pelosi's prior uh, funding bills. And those are Democrat bills, which means they're loaded up. They have more money in them than they need, and they don't, they don't focus on the core function of defense. I think uh, you know, when you talk about a $40 billion a bill passed uh, by the House and signed by, by Biden that sends $12 billion to Ukraine, you know there's a lot in it that, that doesn't uh, – does it need to be in a package like that? I think if the American people had confidence that what was happening was actually funding of Ukraine, uh, just of military operations to be able to keep them, to be able to hold back Russian aggression, um, I think the American people understand that that's in our national security interest. It's certainly, when you listen to Vladimir Putin, he says, I'm not stopping at Ukraine. But we have to stop him then in Ukraine. And I think the American public understand that. He also would control 30% of the world's wheat if he actually wins that war. And I, that might be good for a few farmers in America, but I don't think they want that kind of a win because it will drive up the cost of, of, of bread for everybody in America, and it's already six bucks a loaf. Right, because Vladimir Putin, being an authoritarian leader, you know, we've seen what he's done with energy, we've seen what he's done with natural gas. He uses the resources of his, of his country as one of those weapons to propagate his authoritarian regime. And he certainly just as, as he's threatened countries with um, losing natural gas, with with um, not being able to access Russian oil. Certainly he would do the same with food. Now, Mr. Chairman, I want to talk to you about the Iran initiative. Uh, the Iranian mullahs got together four or five years ago and they decided they would co-op some Americans and they succeeded. But some of those Americans ended up on Team Biden. Does the House Intel have that briefing yet or are we still all working from just what's in the public domain? I can only discuss what's in the public domain. I can tell you that 
you know, we, we have to be very concerned uh, about uh, Iran's reach. Uh, obviously, they're a self-declared adversary of the United States. I think this administration is spending way too much time negotiating with Iran and trying to placate Iran in, in their quest to try to get back into what's known as the JCPOA, the nuclear um, enrichment deal uh, with Iran. Of course, was, we saw them paying billions of dollars uh, for uh, were American hostages. You know, I don't think this administration understands the real threat that Iran poses to the United States. All right. So we can't go further than there. At least tell me that the director of the CIA and the director of national intelligence has come before your committee and they appear to have a grasp on the breadth and depth of CCP espionage in the United States. Do you think that is the case? I could tell you that uh, Director Burns and uh, Director Avril Haines, Director of National Intelligence and Director of CIA, are, are excellent. Uh, they're doing an, an, an incredible job of people in the Biden administration. Uh, they are two that stand out, that are standing up for national security, are responsive to our committee. Um, they're working daily on the issues and the threats that, uh, that, that threaten our country and certainly are working with us together. So how do you describe that? I try and explain to people, we used to do KGB novels, and everyone kind of knew about Soviet Boris Badenov and, and all that kind of thing. I don't think anyone has any idea what the Chicoms are up to, Mr. Chairman. Do you? Um, I, you know, I, I, I think we certainly have a grasp. Your, your intelligence committee currently is working diligently and I think has, is, is doing an excellent job at trying to, to ferret out the threats to our country and make certain people have the information that they need and counter those national security threats. I do think the Biden administration is slow on the uptake on all of that. I mean, it's amazing to see the threats that the intelligence community identifies that the Biden administration has no policy and undertakes nothing. And then, of course, if the administration's slow, they certainly aren't communicating those to the American public and letting the public know uh, what threats are there. So I I do think that um, the the uh, the buck stops there. Uh, I think the Biden administration is is certainly accepting a threat level that um, that is very, very dangerous. Last question, Mr. Chairman. Director Ray is going to be replaced by any Republican who wins. I understand that. In the meantime, is the counterintelligence division at the Bureau, with whom I used to work long ago and far away, and they were good at what they did, are they still functioning even as the Bureau kind of gets buffeted by politicization at the top level? Yes, I believe so. I, I, and and you're absolutely right. I mean, Director Ray and, and the FBI, there, there are a number of of real issues and real reforms that need to occur to the FBI. Uh, but I think on the um, counterintelligence side, on the national security side, uh, the FBI is, is, a, is a working team with the intelligence community. Do they come over and brief you? I mean, does Ray actually sit down with you in closed session? Because he's not very communicative in open session. Uh, yes, he's been to our committee. And, and, right. and I, I, I speak to him on a regular basis. I appreciate that. Very last political question. Have you talked to Jim Jordan yet? Because I don't know that Jim Jordan wants to take the arrows in the back that come with being speaker. He's very good at judiciary. Do you know if he wants to be speaker? Um, I, I do not. I, I spoke to both Jim and Steve Scalise uh, last night as we were all leaving the, the, the Capitol. Um, the uh, privately had opportunities to, to speak with him. I, I, um, I know that either one of them are, are, have great talent and we got a good bench. So I do believe that whoever becomes our next speaker who will be able to lead this house as long as we change the rules and give them the power that they need uh, so that we don't have, again, this Donnybrook of a, of a handful of people uh, taking down the entire House of Representatives. Are, these not, are there any of them repentant? Are any of the 10 saying to anyone, oh, I screwed up, I'm sorry? 
you know, absolutely not. And, you know, you know, two things here. You know, one, you know, Kevin McCarthy was doing a great job as speaker. He was delivering for the American public. He was making certain that he was uh, negotiating hard bargains with, with a, a Democrat Senate and a Democrat president. Uh, he was making that difference of a Republican leading the House. The, the second thing is, is unfortunately, uh, in the environment that we're in, the more attention that some of these individuals get, the more they're emboldened. And uh, this certainly was a very, a very um, you know, circus spectacle uh, that feeds right into that. I, I just got to tell you, Mr. Chair, I, I've been doing this longer than you. I mean, I've been at this a long time. I've never seen the Republicans act this stupid before. So, yeah, a good luck in rebuilding. I, I don't sure, know who's going to take this job. Thank you, sir. Chairman of the House Intel Committee, Mike Turner, great man, great former mayor of Dayton, former, I mean, just a good guy, smart guy. If you're on Intel, everybody knows you're serious. That's the bottom line. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.